Okay, the most important thing. The most important thing. Okay, whatever you do, whatever you do, make sure. Okay, phrases like that, what do they do? They draw you, it scare you? What? Scare you, okay. Okay. I think it's supposed, <laughs> it's supposed to make it, make sure you understand that whatever's coming next is like a really big deal. Like it matters and it matters a lot. And like you need to give your attention and your full attention. And I mean, really, it just communicates exactly what it says, that, that it's important and that you need to pay special attention to what's coming next. And the next thing I'm about to say is the most important thing. And that's what we're going to look at today. We are going to look at a phrase in scripture that tells us this is exactly, this is the most important thing. And not just the most important thing in this book or on this page or in this sentence or in this paragraph, but like the most important thing, like in all of history, in all of mankind, in any subject, the most important thing. It's huge. It's super important. It matters and we need to be listening. Paul says to us today that we need to look at the most important thing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, open your Bibles up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. All right, so this is, a, this is a really important chapter of Scripture, a really pivotal chapter of Scripture, one that we, uh, we just need to pay attention to. We all need to pay attention to this chapter. If you've never read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 or you're not really sure what's in there even as you look at it, like I just encourage you, read 1 Corinthians 15 this week. Read it tonight when you go home. Read it tomorrow when you get home from school or before you go to school in the morning or whatever. Read 1 Corinthians 15. It's, there's so much good stuff in here, and we're going to scrape the surface of that good stuff. But here's what he says in verse 3. Paul says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Paul is saying exactly what we started with. The most important thing is about to come out of my mouth. The most important thing is what you're about to hear from me. Whatever you do, make sure you pay attention to this. What I've received, I passed on to you as a first importance. Now, in different areas of life, like there's different f- first important things. Like it just kind of depends on, on what that might be. So like if you're, everyone used to mow the lawn, mow the lawn for your family at your house. Man, you guys, kids are spoiled these days. Like everyone used to mow the lawn when I was your age. All right, so like if you mow the lawn at your house, okay, If I was teaching you to mow the lawn, I would say to you, listen, this is of first importance. Do not put your hand here when the blade is running. And I'd show you up underneath the lawnmower. Because if that happens, no more fingers, right? That's of first importance when you're mowing the lawn. If you're learning to drive a car, if you're in driver's ed, who has been through driver's ed in this room? Okay? Most of you. Um... If you've been through driver's ed, I think the instructor, instructor should probably start day one and say, hey, this is of first importance and I pass it on to you. This is the break, okay? Because like, if you can't go, you're not going to kill anyone. But if you can't stop, it's going to be dangerous. It's going to be a bad situation. So make sure you know where the break is. If, if you go skydiving... In training, I've never been skydiving before. I'm a little bit afraid of that. But in training for skydiving, I'm assuming, and usually you go with a tandem person anyway the first time, but before you go by yourself, I'm certain that they tell you, hey, this is of first importance. This thing right here, if you pull this string, your parachute comes out. If you don't, it won't. And that's the most important thing. There are most important things in all these different areas of life. And Paul is saying, this is of first importance, importance, period. 
This is a first importance. And here's what he goes on to say. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now this is, this is a passage worth memorizing. My fourth grade son memorized this passage this week because he had to for school. He had a test on it today. And he had it down by the time I got him. I was checking him on the way to school. I'm like, did you get your verse? You got it? Tell me what 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 says. And he was able to spout it off. And that's an important verse for us to know because it's the most important thing, right? The most important thing. But what I received, I passed on to you of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Three big thoughts that I have for you that come out of this verse. They're really obvious. Like you, you could draw these three things out right now. But I just want to expound on three things. First of all, Jesus died for our sins. That's the first part of this. It's the first clause of this. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Jesus died for our sins. He didn't just die. He didn't just take our sins. He died for our sins. He died in order to take away our sins. Jesus went through unimaginable physical, emotional, psychological pain in the cross. In fact, the type of pain that he went through, we have, a, we have an English word that was invented based on the pain from going through crucifixion. That word is called excruciating excruciating. If anybody ever says, man, I was going through just excruciating pain, you know they mean they were feeling some serious pain. And excruciating comes from this word, crucifixion. Can you see the similarity in the word? Excruciating comes from crucifixion. He was going through excruciating pain. The beating that he took, that he had to go undergo before going to the cross, the cross itself, which by the way, a lot of people don't, don't realize this, but dying on the cross was essentially a death by asphyxiation. You essentially eventually would suffocate, suffocate to death. What happens is a person would be nailed to the cross and, and when you're hanging from that position by your arms, like you can't, you can't draw breath because like your, your chest cavity is constricted. And so you're, you're not able to really draw full breaths. And so in order to breathe, the person has to push up on the nails of their feet and the hands in order to take a breath. That's how it works. That's how the torture of the cross works. And so that person, with a person hanging on the cross would eventually be running out of energy and ability to withstand the pain and energy to be able to pull themselves up as they lost blood, as they underwent pain, their body was in shock. And over the course of hours, sometimes days, that person would die a slow, excruciating death on the cross. And that's what it was all about. Jesus died relatively quickly for a person on the cross. He died in six hours, approximately. Six hours. It's still a really long time to hang on a cross, but he died in six hours. He was also beaten severely, more severely than most people would before being hung on a cross. Um, he also, and this is the thing I want, I'm building towards, he also, in addition to the beating, the cross itself, the public shame of dying a criminal's death and being displayed, he was stripped and hung on a cross. There's shame in that. All of that's secondary because the worst thing that he was suffering and, and the thing that may have made his death come quicker, is the fact that he was suffering even more so than he was physically. He was suffering spiritually. He was suffering spiritually. As the only perfect man ever to live, or whoever will live, he took on the sins of the world onto himself. And he experienced separation from his father, which is something that he never had to experience ever before in eternity past. 
Because Jesus was constantly one with his Father in Trinitarian unity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There was a unity in that. They're one, they're one, even though they're separate persons, they're one, they're one entity. And so, like the separation thing was completely foreign to him. And this whole spiritual element was the worst part of all of it. In Matthew chapter 27, we're gonna be bouncing around in scripture a little bit, just stay in 1 Corinthians 15, okay? We're gonna be mostly in there. But Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, it says, at about the ninth hour. It's around 3 o'clock in the, in the afternoon. Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Aramaic. He called out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the pain of the cross for Jesus. Ultimately, that's what it boiled down to, first and foremost. There's a painful separation from God, taking on the punishment and the penalty of our sins onto himself. And not just a group of people's sins, but all of sins of humanity from history and into the future, taking all of that onto himself, the wrath of God. John chapter 19, verse 30, says when he had received the drink, they gave him, they gave him a drink. It said, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, a lot of times when we see that, that phrase, it is finished, we think, oh, this is like a, this is like a cry, a, a sigh of defeat. Like, it's finished. I've been defeated. I'm dead. I'm, I've been killed. And it's like he's being snuffed out and saying it's finished. No, I think it's different than that. I think it's more of a victory cry. In the other Gospels, they don't tell us what he says, but they say that the last thing he did was he cried out in a loud voice, and then he surrendered his spirit. That's what the other Gospels say. But in John, he tells us what he says when he cried out. He cried out and said, it is finished. You can think of it as like a victory cry. Like, it's finished. Because Jesus, he didn't lose in that moment. He defeated Satan, sin, and death in that moment. And that moment was predicted long ago. Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall of mankind. God says this to the woman, Eve. He says, I will put enmity, I'll make you enemies, between you and the woman. Actually, he doesn't say to the woman, Eve. He says it about the woman, Eve. He says it to the snake, sorry, the serpent, which is Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So he's saying, later in the future, the woman will have a son. Notice it's not the man's son. Did Jesus have an earthly father? No. So that's interesting to observe. So later on, the woman will have a son. There'll be enmity between the serpent and the woman's son. Satan, the serpent, will strike his heel, will injure him. If you get hit in the heel, if you get struck or bitten in the heel by a snake, that injured, that hurts, that's painful, that's, that's, uh, that's something to consider. But in that same motion of striking the heel, of wounding him, He's going to crush your head. And so here we have the cross where I think that there must have been part of Satan that thought he was going to win in that moment. Oh, I just defeated God. I just, I just killed his Holy One, his Messiah. I just killed the Son of God. I win. But actually in that moment, Jesus can say it's finished because he actually ended in victory. That same moment that Satan thought ended in his own victory ended in his defeat and the defeat of, of Satan's sin and death all in one moment. It's the ultimate turnaround. It's the ultimate turnaround in that moment that, that Jesus was able to cry out, it is finished. Jesus died for our sins. That's the first thing. And it's so significant for us. So significant for us. All of these things. And the reason that Paul says it's of first importance is because that's exactly what it is. If you're a believer in Jesus, it all hinges on these three things. It all hinges on this. The whole thing, the whole system. And ultimately, this week, this holy week, is the most important time of our faith, most important reflection to look back, the most important celebration that Jesus is alive coming on Sunday because it all hinges on this. 
Jesus died for our sins. Secondly, Jesus was buried. That's the second thing Paul includes, the second clause, that he was buried. Now, basically, this is simple. I mean, there's not a ton for us to, to dive into here. But essentially, this is what he's getting at. He died. He truly died. He was truly killed. He, the life had left him. He didn't faint, which is some people's theory that Jesus just fainted. They call it the swoon theory. He fainted. He was put in a grave, and then he like woke up, and he was like, all of a sudden got superhuman strength and beat up a bunch of guards and got out of there. He didn't really die and raise from the dead. It's, it seems absolutely ridiculous when you hear it, although I guess the, the reality is if you're assuming that no miraculous thing can happen, maybe it's more plausible for some people. But the reality is it makes no sense that a man who'd been beaten this close to his death would be able to all of a sudden beat up a legion of guards, not to mention the fact Roman soldiers knew how to kill people. In fact, that was their expertise. They were the best at killing people, um, and that was what they were best at. So he didn't fake it. He didn't faint. He didn't take a nap. He died. He died, and he was put into a grave. This was not something that was really up for debate in the first century when Jesus was put to death. That wasn't the thing that was being disputed at all. So Paul doesn't spend much time here. In this passage, if you read on, which we are going to look at later, in verses 5 and 6 and 7 and on, he starts talking about how we know that Jesus rose from the dead. He doesn't talk about how we know he was dead because they, the people at that time had witnessed crucifixions before. They knew that if the Romans intended to put him to death, that he was dead. The Romans were expert killers. He was buried. He was put into a grave. There was a, there was a stone rolled over the grave and a seal that held the grave shut. I'm not talking about like a seal balancing a ball on its nose, okay? Like not that kind of seal. Like the seal that, that, would, that would make sure that no one could get in and out easily, right? That would make it impossible. And so Jesus was, was put in the grave, and he was there for the, for the night of Friday, for Saturday, and Sunday morning before he rose again. And that brings us to the third thing, that Jesus was raised on the third day. Jesus was raised on the third day. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to skip down to verse 12. We're going to go 12 through 19, then we're going to read 20, and then we're going to come back to verse 5. So stick with me, okay? Hang with me on this. But if it is preached, Paul says, that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? That was the argument going on. They're saying, hey, we're not going to be able to come back from the dead. There's no resurrection from the dead. But Paul's like, Jesus has been raised, so how can you say that? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. He's talking about the importance of the resurrection to our faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, if in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Verse 19, check this out. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. So basically he's saying, look, we're, we're giving up so much of our lives. If, if we're going to give our lives to this, like if this turns out to not be real, like we should be pitied by more than anyone else. People should feel bad for us because we're giving up everything to follow this man. We're putting all of our, all of our eggs in the basket, Easter eggs, in the basket that, that Jesus raised from the dead. That's, that's the reality of what we ought to be doing as Christians. The way we ought to be living should be such that, not that we're holding back or we're like kind of walking along a fence and like, hey, if Jesus turns out and that whole thing doesn't really work, it's fine because we still had a great life. No, we should be so sold out for Jesus that if it doesn't turn out to be true, like, man, we're to be pitied more than all people. And he goes on to say this, verse 20, but Christ has indeed 
been raised from the dead. He has indeed been raised from the dead. So we don't have to worry about that. That's not what he's saying. Oh, be, be afraid that in case it didn't happen. He's just saying, Christians, live all out. Be the type of people that like your whole life revolves around this reality that Jesus was raised from the dead. In other words, don't be halfway in, Christians. Don't be halfway in the world and halfway in the faith. All the way in the faith. And we're living in the world, but we're called to be not of the world. So be a person who's not of the world. Be all in 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 your faith. If we back up, he explains how we know that Jesus was raised from the dead. Verse 5 says, He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also, Paul's saying, as one abnormally born. We just went through Acts, so we remember this, right? Paul's going along the road. He gets knocked off his horse. He sees this light, hears this voice, calls him to follow him, and he becomes a great preacher for Jesus, right? The whole thing turns around for Paul in, in Acts. And so that's what Paul's referring to. He's like, man... Jesus, the risen Christ, has revealed himself to all these different people in all these different circumstances, all these different situations. It's, it's, it's clear to be seen from the evidence. You can go and you can talk to these people about what they've seen. You can go and talk to these people about the conversation they had with Jesus. You can go talk to Thomas, who didn't believe that Jesus could have raised from the dead, and he can tell you how he got to touch Jesus' hands and the side and see that it really was Jesus himself that he had raised up from the dead. He'd been resurrected. And as Paul's talking about this, man, I mean, it's just, there's such a reality to it. And it's so real to him. And it's so real to the apostles. It's so real to all these eyewitnesses. And mind you, these are eyewitnesses who believed that it was over. Have you ever read the Gospels? As you're reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, the disciples clearly think the whole thing is over. How do we know that? They go back to what they were doing before. They're like, hey, I I know fish, so I'm going to go fishing because a lot of them were fishermen, right? They're like, I guess, I guess it's done. So they, they start going back to the things they were into before. They think the whole movement is dead. They were like, man, I really thought Jesus was going to make a difference. Like, I really thought this was going to change the game, change things permanently. But I guess we were wrong, because we saw that he died. And they thought that it was over. Somehow they had missed all the things Jesus had said about him coming back, they didn't realize that it meant literally he's going to be killed and he's going to come back to, from, from death. And they didn't just somehow like launch this plan and then say, hey, you know what? We're going to make up this lie and then people are going to hate that we made up this lie and they're going to tr- threaten to put us to death for the lie, but we're going to stand by the lie, all of us. We're all going to stand by the lie to the point where they're going to kill us and all we would have to do is tell the truth, but they're going to kill us and we're not going to tell the truth. That's not what happened. Because these people were transformed by something that they experienced, by something that they saw, by something that was real to them. They didn't die for, for something that they made up. Sometimes, sometimes people will die for the truth and refuse to lie, but I, I don't know of a situation where someone is willing to die when all they have to do is tell the truth in order to live. They did, these, these men were not dying for something that they created. They were dying for something that was real to them, that had been revealed to them. The resurrection is the central issue, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and it is transformative. It is transformative. It, it changes people. It changes their hearts. It changes their minds. It changes how they live. It's like a person who is blind suddenly receiving sight. 
I'm not going to show it, but I saw this video today of this grandpa. You should look it up online. It's, it's like it's kind of a sweet video. He was colorblind his whole life, right? And it's a pretty common thing. There's probably people in this room who are colorblind. And while being colorblind is not a complete tragedy, it, it does take some color out of things. Here's a picture of what a person with normal eyesight would see versus a person with colorblindness would see. There's a couple different types of colorblindness, but that picture with all the colors of the balloons, it looks like one of those those two images, depending on what type of colorblindness. And so the, you see the world in a lot of shades of yellowish green, you know? And my brother-in-law is colorblind. I kind of feel bad like that they don't see maybe all the beauty that other people get to enjoy. And this guy, his family gives him this pair of sunglasses that when he puts on these sunglasses, okay, so there's hope for you who are colorblind, puts on these sunglasses and suddenly he can see color, right? He can see all the bright, vibrant colors and he's just like... Like, he just can't believe it, you know? And even more than that, so colorblindness is not a huge thing, but what about a person who has no sight at all? Like, that's transformative. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is supposed to be even more transformative than that. It's like a spiritual blindness that gets lifted. It's a, not a spiritual colorblindness, a spiritual blindness that gets lifted from a person. And it can result in just a completely transformed life. In fact, the result is this. Paul says in verse 55 of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks to God, he gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says basically it changes the whole game. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus changes the whole thing. The result is we go from death to life. We go from defeat to victory. It changes everything. I have a few just kind of ending thoughts, some takeaways, some things to kind of sort of apply to our lives in this season. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, this ought to be just completely completely transformative. So first of all, we get this victory over sin and this relationship with God. We get those things and they're free to us. Okay, But, but a closing thought here, one of the closing thoughts, it's, it's free to us, but it's not free overall. It was very costly for Jesus. It was very costly. It cost everything. It cost God his son. Jesus was willing to come and, and give his life for us. This victory over sin, this relationship with God that we have the opportunity, every single person here has the opportunity to enjoy, to live in. It's free to us, but it's very costly to Jesus. That's huge. Secondly, and coming right off of that, sin is a big deal. Sin is a big deal because sin ultimately is what put Jesus on the cross. And I think that it's easy for us at times, like at times in life, some of us think like, okay, I know I'm about to do this thing. I probably shouldn't do it. I know it's sinful, but you know what? I kind of want to, and it's not that big a deal. No one has to know. And we do it. But like when we do that, we're completely neglecting the idea, the fact that Jesus died for that, that the penalty for that action was laid on him, that that contributed to, to the absolute excruciating nature of his death on the cross. And we treat sin flippantly. That's why when God looks at sin, it's something that he hates, that he despises, because he has borne, through, through the death of Jesus, he's borne the full weight of how, how awful and ugly and, and wrong that sin is. I'm not saying this out of judgment. We all sin. I'm not telling you you should be perfect. But we shouldn't just write it off. When we discover sin in our lives, when we have an opportunity to sin, we need to take that moment seriously. We need to decide 
who we belong to and what we're going to do with the cross that, Jesus, that, that God offers to us for free, even though it costs him everything. And third, we need to remember that this is good news, okay? This is good news. Sometimes when we think about the cross, we think about how awful it is, and it, we're like, oh man, it's, it's bad. But you know what? It's good news. It's called good news. That's what gospel means. All through scripture, it's all through the New Testament, it's called good news. It's good news for us. It's serious. It's somber. But it's good news. And when we have good news, we share it. For example, Chelsea is back in the office working after maternity leave, all right? So that, that is good news. Like, I think I might keep my sanity now. Um, and if, if you have questions, ask her. Um, so that's good news. That's good news for me. I also found out this afternoon, okay, I'm, this is preemptive. I can't announce this official, okay, but it's about to be really good news for me because I'm a Spartan, all right? It looks like Miles Bridges is coming back to play his sophomore year at Michigan State basketball, okay? Which means, which means like a lot of good things could be coming our way. Now, if that's true, that's good news. Can I tell you what I did when I read that on Twitter? Let me tell you what I did. Let me tell you what I did when I read that about Miles Bridges on Twitter. I copied the link. He's, he's an NBA-ready freshman at Michigan State. So Miles Bridges, he, he has this article. There's an article out there that looks like he's coming back. So I, as soon as I saw it, I copied the link, and I sent it to my brother, who I know is out of the loop because he's in South America. And I'm like, dude, Miles Bridges, he's coming back. Like, and I just had to share the good news, you know what I mean? Like, now, now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. When we, when we have good news, we are eager to share it. Somehow, when it's the gospel, we're not that eager to share it. Our fear of other people's reaction often overpowers our eagerness to share. Remember that this is good news. In fact, it's not just good news. It's the best news possible. It's the best news imaginable. And I'm preaching to myself right now too because sometimes I'm not eager to share this good news. We should be so eager to share this good news that it just, it just is constantly oozing out of us that we cannot keep it inside, that people who know us know that this is the best news in our opinion. Not about college basketball players or sports uh, of any kind or not about people coming back to work even though all that's really good news. This is the best news. This is the best news. And so just let that, meditate on that. Think about that. Think about what Jesus has done for you. Think about the fact that it's good news, that it's life transformational for you, that it changes everything. Think about the fact that your sin is not a little deal, it's a big deal. Think about what Jesus, what price Jesus had to pay for your sin. These are the things I want us to walk out with. And during this Good Friday and Easter holiday time of year for us to think about. It's not about Easter bunnies. It's not, it's not about like breaks or nice weather. All those things are great. It is about the centrality of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. We're going to close with a couple songs that help us reflect on this even more. Lord Jesus, I just want to, I just want to thank you, Lord. I just want to thank you, Jesus, for being willing to do what you did for us. God, I confess that there are times in my life where I do not take my sin nearly as seriously as I should. Lord, there are times in my life where I shrug off careless words, thoughts, actions. Lord, there are times in my life where I know the good that I ought to do, but I don't do it. 
and I don't think about it, Lord. And it doesn't, it doesn't affect me in a lot of ways, but it affected you. Jesus, help us to take our sin seriously. Lord, help me to take my sin seriously. Jesus, as we take in this good news that you have changed everything through your death, burial, and resurrection, help us to want to share that with people. Give us the words. Give us the strength. Give us the ability to make the decision, the fortitude to stand behind that truth and to make everyone around us aware that this is the best news ever for all of mankind, every person alive. And Lord, help people to come to you, be drawn to you because of our testimony. Thank you for what you've done. I thank you that you want to transform the world and our lives through it. Lord, we love you. We sing these songs to you. Thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name.